Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Good morning. I'm glad that you're all here. I won't make any jokes about the truly saved being here, but I think we know. Tom brought me the mail from the P.O. box. Once in a while, I get personal mail from the P.O. box, and I just want to share this one with you because I so enjoyed it. It's dated December 11th. Howdy, Pastor Jim. By the way, anybody who begins their letter with howdy, we're doing fine. Several months ago, I went to a coin show. Among the coins, some vendors also sold exonumia, does anybody know that word? And other collectibles. I peeked in a basket of old buttons. And right on the top was a button that said, I'm particular. And I thought, Jim. I did a little research, and this was actually used for cigarette marketing. But that was several decades ago. I can see that. uh, Cigarette manufacturers using the phrase, I'm particular. So, if you decide to wear it, I don't think that most people would draw that connection unless an internet troll gets too much time on his hands. You're a particular kind of guy, and I dig that about you. Grace and peace, John. And he sent me the button that says, I'm particular. And I'm going to wear it quite proudly. There is a denomination known as Particular Baptists. And uh, I guess I have to join that group when I put the button on. Exonumia are numismatic items such as tokens, medals, or strip other than coins and paper money. This includes good for tokens, badges, counterstep coins, elongated coins, encased coins, souvenir medallions, tags, wooden nickels, and other similar items. Well, there you go. We have expanded our horizons today. We, we all know what an exonumia is now. I found it. I just threw my voice in that direction. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Turn to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, where we have been for the last couple of weeks and will be for the next couple of weeks, although we may veer off just a bit so that we can talk about the holidays, because next week is Christmas Sunday, and so the kids who get gifts will have to get up and look at their gifts and then come right to church and then go home and play with their gifts. And the adults that wake up and get gifts and go, oh, you got me a... Well, then you have to put it down and come to church and then go home and be happy about the things you got. And then the week after that is New Year's Day. So the next couple of weeks, we might veer off just a little bit. Next week, we might talk about the importance of the incarnation. That seems like an appropriate thing to talk about on Christmas Day. And then as we begin 2017... We're going to take a Sunday and just look back on 2016 and talk about where we were a year ago and what God has brought us through and where we're at now. So that's kind of the plan for the next couple of weeks. But this morning, we are in 1 Corinthians 12, continuing to talk about the uh, pneumatikos, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
And this morning we're going to concentrate on the particular spiritual gift of speaking in tongues because this is a controversial topic and apparently it has always been a controversial topic because Paul writes about it extensively. Paul has a great deal to say about it and in my experience at least, most of the self-proclaimed charismatic tongue-talking churches don't seem to be paying attention to what Paul said because Paul was very specific about tongue-talking. And then we're also in the process going to talk about the word prophecy and the way that Paul uses the word prophecy because it does concern some folks. When they see the word prophecy, they automatically think like the Old Testament prophets who foretold the future. But the word prophecy, as Paul is using it, you can tell by the context that he's not always speaking of foretelling the future. He is sometimes just talking about speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that he's also talking about, and I like this definition, discerning the things of God and being able to talk about those discerned things. And so Paul is going to contrast prophecy, which he's going to say is something that is known, something that is spoken, something that edifies the group. He's going to contrast that with speaking in tongues. And he's going to say that speaking in tongues also means a known spoken language. We use the word the same way these days. If somebody came in here speaking a foreign tongue, if they spoke in the French tongue, or if they spoke in the German tongue, we would know that when I say they're speaking in the French tongue, that I mean they're speaking in the French language. Now, if we don't speak French or we don't speak German, then the only person who's going to be edified by someone standing up here speaking German would be Wolfgang, who would be able to understand enough of it. Or perhaps my daughter who could understand some bit of it, but but it's not going to edify the group. And so Paul is going to very clearly lay out the fact that if anyone speaks in a tongue, in a language that they don't typically speak, that they're only allowed to do it in the church if there is also an interpreter. Because Paul's argument is, Prophecy, speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit, speaking forward the discerned actions and character of God under inspiration, that edifies the listeners. But if you speak in an unknown tongue to the listeners, that doesn't edify them. In fact, he's going to go so far as to say, even if you say something good, if you bless the people, The actual word he's going to use is eulogia. It's the word from which we get eulogy. It means good words. Even if you're speaking good and wholesome words, but you're doing it in a language that the people don't speak, that no one's going to be able to amen you because they don't know what you're saying. And so Paul's conclusion finally is that he would rather say five words understood than to speak in an unknown tongue within the church. Because his goal is always, always the edification of the body. And if it doesn't edify the body, then it has no purpose within the church. There's no point 
to uh, the very common practice that we see often of people standing up and just saying the uh, get off of my Honda kind of talk, especially if there is no interpreter to say what those words mean. So Paul's very specific. He's not vague in the least. So we're going to let Paul do the teaching and we're going to simply agree with him. So starting at chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning the spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant or unaware. So this whole chapter is him laying out his rules, his expectations, and his explanations of the spiritual gifts. You know, verse 2, you know that when you were pagans, when you were unbelievers, you were led astray to dumb idols, however you were led. Because in Corinth there were a great many temples to foreign idols. There was also, by the way, Corinth is fairly close to the, the city of Delphi. And if you know anything about the history of Delphi, you know that there were the Delphic oracles. There were a lot of temples there where people could go inquire of the gods. And they would inquire through these oracles, these prophets who spoke on behalf of these gods. That's going to come up a little later as we're looking at the contrast of speaking in ecstatic utterances, which happened a lot among the Delphic oracles, and the speaking or the prophesying in known languages that actually edify the body. So you kind of need to know the historic context, too, to understand what Paul is arguing here. You used to be led away with dumb idols, idols that couldn't speak. So therefore, verse 3, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that two weeks ago. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, for what reason? For the common good. So Paul's argument is, as far as the pneumaticos are concerned, in verse 4 he refers to them as the charismata, the gifts of the Spirit that are given by the grace of God, those are given to the church for one essential reason, for the common good, for the edification of the body. And so I've been stressing for two weeks that anybody who uses any kind of spiritual gifting in order to draw attention to themselves is actually just engaging in spiritual one-upmanship they're just trying to prove that they're more spiritual than you. And they're using the gifts for the exact wrong purpose. They're using it for their good rather than the common good. So the first thing that we need to emphasize is whatever the gift is, God does not give the exact same gift to every single person within the body. He's going to argue in the next chapter that if God did that, if everybody had the exact same gift, 
then that would be like everybody within the body being an elbow. And we'll just all be elbows together. But then where's the hearing? Where's the seeing? Where's the walking? Where are the other things that the body can accomplish? The purpose of the gifts within the body is for the good and the edification of the entire body and how the body works and how the body is knit together is up to God who by his spirit gives particular gifts to particular people for the good of the whole body. But the gift that I have is not going to be the same gift that Todd has, which is not going to be the same gift that Jeff has because we're each going to have individual gifts so that those gifts complement each other for the edification of the whole. You understand that? Yes. Okay. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another a word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healings by the one Spirit. To another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy. And to another, the distinguishing of spirits, and to another, various kinds of languages, or various kinds of tongues, that's glossa, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Okay, so now within the charismatic circle, within the Pentecostal movement, there are denominations, there are preachers and congregations who are claiming that the way that you prove that you have the gift of the Spirit is by the evidence of speaking in tongues. You're familiar with that, right? They'll say the proof that you're born again is that you also have the evidence of speaking in tongues. But Paul is going to say that that's not the way it works out because if you look down at verse 29 of chapter 12, he starts asking a rhetorical series of questions. All are not apostles, are they? Okay, well, what would be the rhetorical answer to that? The answer is no. No, they're not all apostles. There are apostles chosen by Jesus who were with him from the beginning until the end. And those people can rightly be called apostles, but not everybody's called an apostle. All are not prophets, are they? What's the answer? No. Not everybody has the gift of prophecy. Some people have the ability to speak the things of God and speak under inspiration, but not everybody does that. All are not teachers, are they? Well, no, within the church there is a gift given that is teachers. God gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. And so the teaching ministry within the church is a very particular gift and not everyone's a teacher. They're not all workers of miracles, are they? Todd, yank out a miracle. Apparently everybody's a miracle worker. Well, no, they're not. So the answer to all these questions is no, 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 no. Look at verse 30. All do not have gifts of healings, do they? No, some people get sick and they pass away from it. Some people get sick and God intervenes and instantaneously heals them. Oh, that's wonderful. But that doesn't always happen. Then look at the next sentence, which says, 
all do not speak with tongues, do they? Okay, now I don't know what the Pentecostals do about that. I don't know what the people who say you have to have the gift of speaking in tongues as evidence that you're born again. They apparently just avoid that verse because Paul just asked the question, they don't all speak in tongues, do they? And the answer again is no. And then he asks, all do not interpret, do they? Well, no, because that's a gifting that God has to give somebody by his grace to understand that language. It would be like if suddenly Josiah started talking about the wonderful works of God in Yugoslavian. And then suddenly, Karen jumped up and said, at this moment, very much like what happened at Pentecost, when everybody could hear and understand in their own language, Karen would stand up and say, I understand Yugoslavian at this moment. And she could interpret for us what he was saying. Okay, that would be really miraculous, and it'd be really wonderful, and Josiah, if you want to go for it, knock yourself out. But the reason he can't is because God has not gifted him with that. But if God did gift him with that, God would also gift somebody with the ability to understand it and interpret it for the good of the whole body. Paul is later going to say, if two or three speak in tongues within the church and there's nobody there to interpret, shut up. (laughs) Okay, that's not exactly the word he uses, but it's the same thing. He says... People are not to stand up and start speaking in tongues if there is no interpreter. So his rhetorical question, do they all speak in tongues? No. And do they all interpret? No. The same way that they're not all apostles or not all prophets. They're not all teachers. They're not all workers of miracles. They don't all have gifts of healings. And then they don't all speak in tongues and they don't all interpret, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a more excellent way. And that'll take us to chapter 13 at some point in the future. But go to chapter 14, because starting in chapter 14 is Paul's extended treatise on speaking in tongues. And again, as I said, he's going to contrast it with prophecy. Prophecy, the speaking forward of the things of God, the speaking under the inspiration of God, whether that's foretelling the future or whether that's telling forth the things of God, that is an understood and to-be-desired gift that stands in contrast with tongues. Paul's going to go so far in this contrast as to say that tongues aren't even supposed to be a sign for the church. When the church gets together, there's no reason for tongues. If I stood up here and started speaking Swahili, that's not going to help anybody in the room who doesn't speak Swahili. And if there's no interpreter, then the rest of you are left wondering what in the world I'm talking about. But if I prophesy in the common language, If I speak forward the things of God in the common language, then everybody is edified by that. So that's going to be Paul's argument. Again, I don't know what the Pentecostals do with this, but Paul is going to argue for order 
in everything within the church. And that becomes like the basis, like the standard for Paul, that everything has to be orderly. Jim, they, they, to handle that, because they grow up in that, they then distinguish between a private and a public prayer language, which, again, is nowhere in there. So nowhere they, in there. They have to come up with that because of these verses. Yeah. And one way they do that is, is Corinthians 13.1. They always speak with the tongues of men and angels. Right. They say this is an angelic language that we're speaking. Yeah. We'll get to that in the weeks to come, but I'm not convinced, since you brought it up, that Paul is actually saying that he speaks in the tongues of angels because he's using that as a contrast to charity and love. And so I think he's speaking in hyperbole because he's just said, if I understand all mysteries and if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but don't have love, I'm nothing. So I think he's using that phrase, tongues of angels, in order to say, I don't just speak human tongues, even if I had the gift of tongues to the degree that I spoke in the tongues that angels speak, but I don't have love, I got nothing. So I think it's hyperbole. Or as they say here in the South, hyperbole. (laughs) So let's start at chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love, that's what he's going to talk about in chapter 13. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly... The pneumatikos, the spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So he puts prophecy above all the other spiritual gifts. And it simply cannot be foretelling the future or what we commonly think of as prophecy, the ability to say, you're going to go here and you're going to do that, or else everybody in the church would be constantly prophesying. So the way he's using the word prophecy has to be the speaking forward of the things of God. And he desires that everybody do that. Now notice, first off, again, in contrast with the charismatic churches, the churches that say you prove that you're born again by having the sign of speaking in tongues. That's the proof positive that you're born again. Notice that Paul does not say that. He says, the gift you should desire is prophecy. The gift you should desire is the ability to discern the actions, the work, the word of God, and to speak that forward. For one who speaks in a tongue, glossa, does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks Mysteries. So here's Paul's first best case scenario. Somebody asked me last week, I think it was Linda, who said, when you go into very charismatic tongue-talking churches, do you think that this is a practiced, learned behavior, or do you think it's actually something spiritual going on? And I said, best case scenario, it's a practiced, learned behavior. For instance, I went to a church 20 years ago when I was looking for a church to go to. There was a young man that I met, long hair, leather jacket, you know, my gang. And he was reading the scripture to folks at a local retirement home. And so I liked that about him. I was attracted to that. He invited me to church, so I went. 
when I went to the church, he saw me. And so he made sure that I sat on the front row with him. You know, he grabbed me and moved me to the front row. And I was like his trophy. You know, hey, I brought somebody. And uh, we're maybe 10, 15 minutes into the service when the woman just down the pew from me stood up and started babbling, apparently, in tongues. Now, as she was, quote, unquote, speaking in tongues, she kept using the word Adonai. And I know enough Hebrew to know that Adonai is a word for God. And then the pastor, knowing that there should be an interpreter, began, quote, unquote, interpreting. And he talked about a tree and a stream and a brook and green grass and there are birds and butterflies. And he never once said the word God in his interpretation, which made me realize that she was just putting on a show, a practiced speech. And then the pastor is equally putting on a show because he's not interpreting. Because whatever she's saying, that's not what he's saying. Well, as he began interpreting and she continued going on, suddenly a guy jumped up and started howling like a dog and somebody else started walking the pews. Have you ever seen this? Stepping from pew to pew. And then a guy started running down the middle aisle back and forth and I just had to go. I had to leave. And with each row that I walked by, people were shouting out, save him, Jesus, as I was was walking out of the church. And I was wearing uh, boots with wooden heels, and it was one of those old country churches with a wooden floor raised up off the ground. So I couldn't help it. My feet went clomp, 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 clomp as I walked out. And the last sound they heard from me was the scattering of the asphalt in the parking lot as I was peeling my way away from that place. So my point is, best case scenario, those people were just making stuff up. They they were lying, but they were making it up to appear spiritual. Worst case scenario, there was something spiritual happening in that room, but it wasn't the spirit of God. This is one of the reasons that among the gifts that Paul lists is the discerning of spirits. John says, test the spirits, because not every spirit is from God. And so there may have actually been a spiritual element to what was happening in that church, but it wasn't a spirit from God because God's not of confusion and God would not lie that way. He would have actually made the woman speak an actual known language, which then somebody would interpret. So Paul very clearly says, again contrasting prophecy with speaking in tongues, that in the best case scenario where God actually gifts somebody with the ability to speak a language, that when they speak that language, they don't speak to men because men don't understand that language, but they speak to God. God has gifted them with the ability to speak a language to him, but then Paul says, but no one understands. But in his spirit, he speaks not known things. He speaks things that are even mysterious to him. He speaks in mysteries. 
Paul in a moment is going to contrast that with what he calls speaking with your mind and your understanding. So the speaking in tongues, especially if it's being done the real thing, the speaking in tongues, the person who's speaking it doesn't know the language they're speaking. So they're speaking forward mysterious things. That's why it's necessary that there be an interpreter so that everybody can be edified by it and everybody can know what's being spoken. But if a man speaks a tongue, if I'm praying at home by myself and I start praying in any language, Scandinavian, I'm not going to understand it. I don't speak Scandinavian. But it's going to be a gift from God for the edification and the prayer to God, but it's a mystery to me. So that's why it's not to be done within the church, because it doesn't help the church. Verse 3, but the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Okay, now there's no way to get those three results from speaking, I know the future. I know what you're going to do. You're going to go to a certain city and you're going to do this and that. That is not going to result in edification, exhortation, and consolation. So again, Paul is contrasting speaking in a language that people don't know to speaking the common language in such a way that what you're saying edifies men, exhorts men, and also for consolation, that you have peace with God. So Paul is clearly using the word prophesy in a way that means to speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the things of God to men in the common language. And that, to Paul, is preferable to speaking in an unknown tongue. You see the contrast? Here, I'll read it again. Verse 2. One who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but he speaks to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies does speak to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue, in a glossa, in a known language, edifies himself. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. And remember what Paul said, the gifts of the Spirit were for, for the good of all, for the common good, for the edification of the church. So again, Paul doesn't sound like he's advocating that there ought to be tongue-talking in the church. I don't know what the Pentecostals and the Charismatics do about that. But Paul is going to continue arguing for speaking clearly to human beings for their edification, their consolation, their exhortation, and speaking the things of God in the common language to everybody, because if they speak in a tongue, they might edify themselves, but they're not helping anybody else. Now, Paul's not content with that. He's going to go on and give examples. Verse 5. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. I do wish that you all had that gift. But even more... I wish that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets 
so that the church may receive edifying. So again, the root of all of it is the edification of the church. Paul wishes that everybody had the gift of tongues. I wish the same thing. I wish that we had the constant manifestation of the Spirit of God in our midst. I wish there were miracles. I wish there were healings. I wish that God made himself that obvious every Sunday when we met together for the good of the whole church. I agree with Paul. I wish that you all had these gifts. But, Paul says, even more I want you to speak the common language to men for the edification of the church, for their edification, their exhortation, their consolation. When you get together as a church, speak about the things of God in a way that's understood. Verse 6, but now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in foreign languages, speaking in tongues, What shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? He says, I can come to you and speak in tongues. In a moment, he's going to say, I speak in tongues more than all of you. I speak in tongues constantly, which makes sense. As much as Paul traveled in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, if you traveled 50 miles You were into a different dialect. And Paul, a Greek-speaking Jew, going into all these areas, had to speak the common dialect in order to talk about the things of Christ and the things of God. So it makes sense that Paul, who traveled so much more than the people who were planted there in Corinth, he could say, I speak in tongues more than all of you. And yet he says, if I come to you and I speak to you in some language you don't speak, what good is that? How much does that help you? I can only help you if I bring you some apocalypsis, some revelation, or I bring you some knowledge of the things of God and Christ, or I bring some prophecy. I come and speak under the inspiration of the Spirit And I discern the things of God to you and by teaching. And I then teach you the things of God. That's the only way I help you. But if I just come and talk in a language you don't speak, it's not going to help anybody. So verse 7. Yet even lifeless things, either a flute or a harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? Okay, so now Paul's using a musical example. Okay, here's the song. Are you ready? What song's that? I don't know. It was the right rhythm. A few more notes. (laughs) She got it. Okay, that's joy to the world. You just sang it. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. 
that's pointless because there's no melody to it. And because there's no melody to it, it's difficult to know what song it is. Now, Paul's going to use that as an example in everyday life among the Israelites and among the Greeks. Because they oftentimes used musical instruments to communicate, especially trumpets, because you could communicate via a trumpet over a long distance. They didn't have telegraph or telephone or internet or any of that. So one of the best ways to communicate was by trumpet. And they had a series of trumpet calls. They had a trumpet call that was everything's quiet and everything's at peace and the enemy is away. But they also had a trumpet call that was an alarm. The enemy's coming. Prepare for war. Now, if the trumpet only played, like I just did, only played one note, then how are people going to know what to do? They're not going to understand. So Paul says, for if the trumpet produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? People are standing around and suddenly there's a trumpet. And the trumpet calls, not, 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 not. Unless it's Morse code, they're getting nothing out of this. They don't know that they should prepare for battle And they're going to lose when the enemy shows up. So the trumpet has to make a distinct sound. Lifeless things like flutes or harps have to produce a distinct sound. The word that he's using for sound has moved right into the English language. It's the word phone. We just say phone. And it means a a sound, a noise. But in a moment, the translators are going to translate that exact same word as language. And so Paul is saying, if you're speaking a language that isn't particular to people, that is not specific to people, then you're just making sound. So Paul says that if a flute or if a harp doesn't produce a distinct phone, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, How will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? For if a trumpet produces an indistinct phone sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the, same word glossa, it's the word for tongue, unless by your tongue you make speech that's clear, Then how will it be known what's spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. In other words, it goes out, it means nothing. So Paul's contrast is an instrument has to make a particular sound in order to be a musical instrument. It has to make distinction in tones the same way that you, when you speak, have to make a distinction of words and a distinction of language. The things that come off your tongue have to be understood Otherwise, you're just speaking into the air, and it's needless, it's senseless, it's pointless. How many of you have ever turned on the TV and seen somebody speaking in tongues? I have many, many times. I won't say names, their initials are TBN. If you turn on that or several other TV channels, you can see people, especially, I remember one day watching fairly well-known preacher who had a guest preacher that day, another big-name preacher within the charismatic circles. And suddenly, 
the preacher of the church starts speaking in tongues and then his guest starts speaking in tongues and they do the babbling, the get off of a Honda kind of stuff. And they're both laughing, laughing up a fit, laughing and babbling and just carrying on. And there's like a thousand people in that auditorium. They're getting nothing. There's nothing going on. Nobody's interpreting. But these two had a chance to show off. They had a chance to show why they're the preachers, why they're the important people, because they were more spiritual than the rest of the congregation. So what did it do for the congregation? Nothing. It did nothing for the congregation. The congregation learned nothing. The congregation didn't hear the wonderful works of God. They weren't edified or exhorted by any of it. What they got was a show. And Paul forbids that within the church. So you've got to speak distinctly. Verse 9. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many languages in the world. That word languages, again, is phone. Same word again. So even though it's translated by two different English words here, Paul is comparing spoken known languages or unknown languages to instruments that are making a particular series of notes and tones or instruments that are playing monotonally. And he is saying that to speak a language that's understood is the way that people ought to speak within the church because unless you utter by your tongue speech that is clear, How is it going to be known what's spoken? Now, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages, phone in the world, and none of them is without meaning. Notice that. Notice that when Paul is talking about tongues, when he's talking about speaking in language, lalia is the word for speak. That's where we get the word glossolalia, the compound word that is translated speaking in tongues. When you speak By a tongue, Paul says, it's a known language somewhere on the planet. There are a variety of these different languages, but none of them are without meaning. So when you see these get off of Mahanda kind of babbling, the mumbla bumbla kind of ecstatic utterances that don't have meaning on planet Earth, that's not speaking in tongues. Again, best case scenario, it's making something up in order to show off. Worst case scenario, it's genuinely demonic. But it's not Christian. Verse 11, if then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. A barbarian just means somebody uncultured. In Greek culture and in Hebrew culture, which were higher cultures, somebody who was unlearned and not a part of their larger culture was considered a barbarian. And so he says, if somebody comes among you in the church and you're speaking something that doesn't make sense to them, you're going to be like a barbarian to them, and they're going to be like a barbarian to you. You're going to have no understanding, and Paul's point is always understanding. 
If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks like a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be like a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous for pneumatikos, the spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So if you desire the spiritual gifts, which Paul says you should, you should desire the spiritual gifts, but not for the purpose of showing off. Because if that's your purpose, then you're not edifying the body. But if you do receive any of the spiritual gifts, it's for the good and the edification of the whole body, the good of the assembly, the good of the church, the ecclesia. Do you understand this yet? Yes. Doesn't this sound very opposite from what's going on in the world today? Totally. It sounds dramatically different than what we see exercised all over the place. And I use the word exercise on purpose <laughs> because I do think it's men just exercising themselves. I don't believe it's the gift of God. Therefore, verse 13, so now he's going to start getting into the rules. Now he's made his point. Now he's made his point that if you're speaking in tongues and nobody understands, what good is that? And that any spiritual gift that God gives you is for the edification of the whole body. It's for the good of the whole congregation. Therefore, this is how you ought to act within the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret, again, for the good of the body. If someone speaks a foreign language, Make sure they interpret the foreign language. In a minute, he's going to say, if there's no interpreter, be quiet. Therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. Remember back in verse 2, he said, for the one who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to men. He speaks to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. He's now going to contrast speaking in the spirit and speaking with his mind. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So if you speak in a tongue that you don't naturally speak, you don't understand what you're saying, and therefore your mind is not fruitful. Your mind is not understanding what's happening. That's why there has to be some kind of interpretation for it to be legitimate and also be helpful to the body. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what's the outcome then? I shall pray with the spirit and I shall pray with the mind also, I will sing with the spirit, but I shall sing with the mind also. So Paul is arguing that when I pray and when I sing, when I do these things before God, I would rather do it in the language I commonly speak because that also edifies my mind. My mind is engaged. I don't like stupid Christianity. I don't like dumb Christianity. Paul here argues that even when you praise God, when you sing to God, that you should do it mindfully. You should do it with your ability, your cognition, your thinking ability, that your mind ought to be engaged by the things of God. And so he argues that if he speaks 
in a foreign tongue or sings or prays in a foreign tongue, his spirit might be active in doing that, but his mind isn't being edified because he doesn't know any of these words that are being said. So instead, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray with the spirit and with my mind because the Holy Spirit can fully and functionally operate through the language you speak. The reason that I stand up here and speak English is because you all speak English. By speaking in English and occupying not just my mind, but hopefully your minds, then the group is edified and consoled and exhorted. And so Paul's conclusion is, since the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, he's going to say that in a moment too, since that's the case, he realizes that he can both pray with his mind and he can sing with his mind he can exhort and teach with his mind in the common language so tongues aren't necessary in this church there's no reason for anybody to speak anything other than English now in a moment Paul's going to say that tongues are a sign to the unbeliever and that's the reason he spoke in tongues even Isaiah says it that foreign tongues are assigned to the unbeliever. But then he's going to say, within the church, I'd rather say things that are understood. So what's the outcome then? Verse 15, I shall pray with the spirit and pray with the mind also. I shall sing with the spirit, but I shall sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you, eulogia, if you bless in the spirit only, How will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen? How are they going to agree with you at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you're saying? So Paul says, if I stand up here and say thankful, wonderful, blessing-filled things in a language none of you speak, how are any of you ever going to agree with me because you don't know what I'm saying? How are you going to say amen to my good speech and my thanksgiving if you don't understand what I'm saying? Now, this is the place, by the way, where Paul says, if someone who fills the place of the ungifted, somebody who doesn't have the gifts of the spirit, that is the word idiotes. It is the word from which we get idiot. And even though you enjoyed that too much, and even though the word idiot has been passed down into the English language and taken on a whole different connotation than Paul's word here in the Greek. He is saying somebody who is unlearned in the things of God is essentially an idiot. Somebody who doesn't know the things of God, somebody who doesn't know the word and the works of God, the character and the purpose of God, someone who doesn't understand that world history is serving God's purpose, that that person is an unlearned, ungifted person and is idiotes. So yes, I think we can say, if we're being snarky, that if you're not a believer in God, well, you're an idiot. Paul said it, I didn't. I'm just sad that that didn't get more enjoyment than than it was. Oh, okay. We don't know if we can enjoy it. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, 
how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at the giving of thanks since he does not know what you're saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified by it. He doesn't understand it. So I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. Which, like I just said, as much as he traveled, as many areas as he traveled in, he would naturally have to speak in tongues in order to communicate to the various dialects and people groups that he traveled within. So I thank God that I speak in languages, in tongues, in glossa more than all of you. However, in the church, in the assembly, in the ecclesia, I desire to speak five words with my mind where I really understand what I'm saying so that I may teach others, so that I may instruct others. I would rather do that than speak 10,000 words in a foreign tongue. So Paul's point in thinking again is within the church, he would rather say intelligent, understood, teaching things for the edification of the whole body than to come in speaking in tongues, even though he spoke in tongues constantly. I also think it's interesting that Paul had to tell them that. Why didn't the people in Corinth just know that? I mean, Paul was among them. Why did he have to point out that he spoke in tongues more often? Because when he was there within the church, he didn't do it. Because within the church, it didn't help them. Verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil, be like babes. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written. Now, this is actually from Isaiah. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. It's actually Isaiah 28. If you go back and you read it, it's in the context of Isaiah saying that the people of God, the Israelites, had so turned their back on God that even if he was to demonstrate miraculous gifts to them by teaching them through strangers, through foreigners, through Gentiles, people of a foreign tongue, if God poured out his grace on them, that the Israelites still weren't going to listen. So based on that, Paul concludes that tongues then were not for any purpose within the church. They were as a sign to foreigners, to people outside the church. That's the purpose of the gift of tongues. And he says so in verse 22. So then, here's his conclusion. So then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So again, being able to prophesy, to speak under the inspiration of the Spirit, to talk about, to discern the things of God, that's profitable to the whole body, whereas speaking in a foreign language doesn't edify anybody within the church because they don't understand it. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to the unbelievers. So really, again, what are the charismatics doing when they stand up in church and start humble a bumble a bumble stuff? What are they doing? They think 
that it is a demonstration or a show of their spirituality to the rest of the congregation. But Paul says that's not what it's for. It's for the unbeliever. Because think about this. If you, an English-speaking American, who is not taught or doesn't know, let's say, French, and you meet a French unbeliever, and you tell him the wonderful works of God in French, which you don't speak, isn't that going to be a sign to him that something miraculous, something different just happened? That's going to convince him that what you're saying is not from you, it's directly from God, because God has just miraculously given you the ability to convey the mighty works and the great glory of God to an unbeliever who doesn't even speak your language. So Paul is saying that's what tongues are for. That's what they've always been for. That's what Isaiah said they're for. In Isaiah, they were for the purpose of speaking to Israel by men of a foreign tongue, and Israel still wasn't going to listen. So then they're assigned to the unbelievers. But to the believers, what's good, what's edifying, what's helpful is prophesying. So then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to the unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If therefore, verse 23, if therefore the whole church should assemble together, and all speak in tongues, and ungifted, idiotes, ungifted men who don't have the spirit, who don't know the things of God, and they come into your church, if the ungifted men or the unbelievers enter, won't they all think you're crazy? Yeah, to this day, if the unbeliever comes among you, and you're all whooping it up and humble a bumbling and doing all that, they're not going to know what's going on. They're not going to be edified by it, and they're going to think you're mad. And they're going to leave. They're not going to be edified by it. But, verse 24, but if all prophesy, if all are speaking the word of God, if all are speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit in the common language, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters then he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So if an unbeliever, if somebody comes through the door of GCA, never darkened the door of a church before, and they come through the door, what's going to be more helpful to them? If they understand none of what I say, or if they understand every word, they're going to be convicted if I speak directly to them. And if everybody in the group speaks by the Spirit of God and speaks into their life and speaks the things of Christ to them, then they're going to more likely be convicted by that and fall on the ground and worship God than if they come into the room and don't understand anything anybody says. And apparently that was what was happening at Corinth. Apparently there was so much carrying on going on. Apparently there was so much tongue talking and calling out miracles and so many of these spiritual gifts that it was, it was just a rabble at this point. 
And so Paul was saying, when the unlearned and ungifted come among you, they're not going to understand anything you're doing. So you're not going to help them. You're not going to edify them. So Paul is going to clear up the way that they're acting. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble... Each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Now, some folks, I've seen several different books, not so much commentaries, but I've seen different books that have quoted that verse out of context in order to say this is how it ought to be within the church. That everybody ought to have a psalm or a teaching or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation, that that's how it ought to be. But I think in context here, it's plain that Paul is correcting their behavior. In a moment, he's going to tell them how to do it better, how to do it differently. And this whole chapter so far is corrective in nature. Paul is not saying you've done well. He's saying you've got to clean up your act. And so I don't think that verse 26 is a positive verse. I think Paul is pointing out that you're acting in a way that if a stranger comes among you, he's not going to understand. So verse 27 begins the corrective language. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and only in turn, and let somebody interpret. But if there is no interpreter... Then let him, the one who spoke in tongues, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So again, best case scenario, actual gift of God, actual speaking in tongues. Even under that circumstance, if there's nobody there with the gift to interpret, then the guy who's speaking in tongues is to be quiet because that's not edifying the group. It might be good for him, but then he should do it privately. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. If there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. And let two or three prophets speak and let the others Past judgment. Now, this is real important. Paul is saying if it's going to be done in a group setting and if it's going to be done by several different people, that there should also be people with the discerning ability to judge what people are saying. I was in a church one time up on Nolansville Road where a woman stood up. Actually, the pastor had a portable microphone and was walking through the crowd, giving anybody the opportunity to speak who wanted. And a woman stood up and started by speaking in tongues, the the mumbla-bumbla stuff. And she used that as her reason to then prophesy by which she meant speaking about the future. And she said that God was going to use that pastor to change the face of racial relations in Nashville. This was 16, 17 years ago. And she went on and on about how God was going to use this pastor, really raised up this pastor and his ego, and just God was going to use him, and all the racial problems in Nashville were all going to be solved through this guy. Who, by the way, you've never heard of, and who never did any of those things. 
but she thought that that was prophesying. And so Paul says, when somebody within the church prophesies, make sure there are men there to judge it, to assess it, to discern it, and to see whether this is actually good for the church or whether it's, again, something that's drawing attention to the speaker. Let two or three prophets speak, but let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. I'm sure that Jeff will confirm this one for me. But people have a tendency within the charismatic circles to think that if the Spirit of God falls on them, that they just gotta speak. They just got right? I tell them the truth? Yeah. That they just gotta talk because that's the Spirit of God. And I've got a revelation and I've gotta talk. And Paul says here, if somebody else has something to say, you be quiet. And his argument's gonna be because the Spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, if you're doing these things with your mind, if you're thinking intelligently about your Christianity and you care about order within the church, if somebody else has something to say, that the person who first began to speak would just be quiet and sit down and let the next person speak because everything is meant to be done in an orderly fashion. If a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. See, again, the way he's using the word prophesy there. He's clearly not just saying, speaking something that's going to happen in the future. He's talking about saying things that are going to teach, speaking things that are going to edify other people and instruct other people and exhort other people. So then you can all do that one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So the one who's doing the work of speaking forward never loses his mind. He never is just so taken by the spirit of God that he can no longer control himself. Do you remember the Toronto experience? There were people not only barking like dogs, but they said that when the spirit fell, that their tooth fillings became gold, as if that's what's really important to God, that he wants you to have a grill, <laughs> that he really cared. God, I'm glad you enjoyed that. He really wants your mouth and your fillings to no longer be mercury. He wants gold in your mouth. He, This was the the laughing movement. They would say that when the Spirit of God landed on the church, that they would all just begin laughing. They would cry out with laughter, peals of laughter, like hyenas' laughter, laughing to see who could be the loudest. And then, of course, they'd all start falling on the ground. Oh, just fits of laughter. And that's when they started saying, I'm drunk in the Spirit. I'm so drunk, I have no control of myself. I can't help what's happening As if the spirit of God, who is imminently intelligent and organized, when he comes into a body of people, would cause disarray and disorder and craziness. But they claim that's what was happening and that they couldn't help themselves. And yet here's Paul saying that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, you can too help it. 
you have an obligation within the church to make sure that what you're doing and what you're saying and how you're speaking edifies the body. And if at any point it ceases to do that, you have the ability to shut up. Here's the point. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Actually, most translations add an extra phrase of God. The original text actually just says, for God is not of confusion. There's nothing about God that's confused or confusing. And the Spirit of God would not come into a group of his saints and cause confusion. His purpose is education and edification and exhortation and consolation. And that you have peace with God. And you're only going to know that if you think about it. If you use your mind and if the person who's teaching you about it speaks by the Spirit of God and tells you, teaches you the things of God so that it brings peace to your life. Confusion can't do that. But speaking intelligently can do that. So all right, now we won't get into at this particular moment, let the women keep silent in the church. For for they are not permitted to speak but let them subject themselves as the law also says. Let me just briefly say that it might be a cultural thing, but within context, Paul is talking about prophesying, speaking by the Spirit. He's talking about speaking in tongues. He's talking a lot about Lelia's speech. And he says, but don't let the women do that. And again, I think that's within the The confusion clause. Don't let there be confusion because, as I said, the Delphic oracles were right close by where there were plenty of prophetesses. And in order to hear from the oracles, you had to go to the prophetesses with gifts, and then they would do ecstatic utterances and all of the spiritual show-off stuff. So maybe Paul was saying, especially within Corinth, to stop that behavior within the church because that was infiltrating the church from the outside. But at very least, Paul is giving the direction that when it comes to prophesying, when it comes to speaking in tongues, that it should be the men who are leading the church, and so they should be the ones who are doing the speaking, and they are the ones who should be doing the prophesying or the speaking in tongues, and that the women should be learning. If they desire to learn, says verse 35, Let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Verse 36. So, was it from you that the word of God first went forth? This is another rhetorical question. What's the answer? No. The answer is no. It wasn't from you that the word of God first went forth. The word of God went forth from Jerusalem, not from Corinth. Or has it only come to you? Well, no, because it's also come to Thessalonica, and it's also come to Galatia, and it's also come to Jerusalem. It didn't start with you. It didn't end with you. Verse 37, for if anyone thinks that he is a prophet, or that he is, pneumatikos, that he is spiritual, then let him recognize 
that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, then he's not recognized. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm so sure of what I'm saying. I'm so sure of my instructions to the church. That if anyone else rises up in the church and says, hey, I'm spiritual and I disagree with Paul. Paul says, if they can disagree with me, then they're not approved of God. Because what I'm telling you is right from the Lord. Directly from the Lord. This is the way his church ought to operate. This is the way the gifts of the spirit ought to be used. And if anyone does not recognize this, then he's not recognized. And therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Don't forbid to speak in tongues, but let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. That's the root of the whole thing. To be done in an orderly fashion because God's church ought to be an orderly church. So do you see how much ink and papyrus Paul spent on the abuses of speaking in tongues. And yet, the vast majority of that material is unknown to the charismatic church. Or they've excused it or ignored it. But Paul's very clear about it. So again, why do we do what we do here at GCA? Why don't we engage in ecstatic utterances? Because Paul forbids it. And why do we stand up here and speak in English to English speakers? Because Paul said that's how it ought to be within the church. Now, just like Paul, I don't forbid the speaking of tongues if it's the real thing. If someone for God's own purposes, as a sign to an unbeliever, were to speak a language they don't commonly speak, and an interpreter interprets, and it's, It's telling forth the great and wonderful acts of God and what he did in Christ. I have no qualm with that. I don't have the authority to say that that has utterly ceased. God, who is sovereign, can do whatever he wants. But in this day and age, in the day of Internet and digital translations and the Bible being translated to every language under the sun, In these days, the necessity to speak in tongues isn't as apparent within the church. There's no necessity to speak the foreign languages because there are already preachers, there are already Bibles, there are already translations that are helping the people who speak that language hear about God. It's different today than it was 2,000 years ago, but even though it's different I do not believe I have the authority to say that God has changed. If God wants to gift you with some spiritual gift, if God wants to give you a gift of faith, if God wants to give you, I would argue, by the way, that one of the spiritual gifts that Paul mentions several times, the gift of teaching, I would argue that that's still alive and well at GCA. So I can't argue that the spiritual gifts have ceased. Because that gift still goes on. The gift of faith still goes on. And if God chooses to operate in his people through one of the other gifts, that's not my jurisdiction to say that can't happen. But I will always insist 
that it's done rightly, that it's done properly, and that it's done for the edification of the church because this is the church of Jesus Christ and it should be an orderly church. Make sense? Yes. I'm done. Anybody got anything to add? Just don't add it in tongues. George? (laughs) One of the gifts he talks about is the gift of discernment. I wonder if there has ever in the entire history of the charismatic or uh, what's the other word? Pentecostal. Pentecostal church. If there has ever been a situation where someone spoke in tongues and then someone else said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a discerner. And I can tell you that what this man was saying in the ancient Sumerian tongue is bunk. (laughs) <laughs> he, he, was, he was channeling a fallen angel and paid no attention to what he just said I, I doubt if this discernment stuff is ever used but you see how important it is it, right but yeah. you know they ignore that yeah you know as we continue through chapter 12 next time that we're back in 1 Corinthians we'll start at chapter 12 where we left off but Paul again is going to list other gifts they're, they're going to keep coming And he's going to say that within the church, God has placed prophets and apostles, but then he's going to say that men are given the gifts of helps and the gifts of administration. People are gifted by God to lead the church so that there is order within the church. And I think that that requires discerning. So I would say that those gifts still operate. Right? Yeah. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.